This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome back to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney uh, joining you today as we are at the Digital Tornado Conference here on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. Part of this conference, machine learning is one of the areas of focus. We're seeing a greater push for it with the want for artificial artificial intelligence, excuse me, and more, but also with the use of big data in almost every sector of our lives, the ability for machines to better understand us and our likes or dislikes and our patterns of living is an intriguing prospect for the future. It's also one that worries some people as well. Michael Kearns is a professor of computer and information science here at the University of Pennsylvania. He is founding director of the Warren Center for Network and Data Sciences and the faculty founder and former director of Penn Engineering's Networked and Social Systems Engineering Program. Nice meeting you. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, the word algorithm is one that, as I'm thinking, as I grew up, you know, I, being 50 years of age, I had it strictly as pretty much a math, you know, kind of theory. But in today's world, it seemingly means so much more to so many more people. Well, it does, but I think that's not because of a change in the meaning, but just the ubiquity and influence of algorithms in everyday life. Um, you know, when you and I were growing up, um, algorithms and computers generally were really just in the domain of scientists and, um, you know, researchers working on very specific, narrow data sets. And now we have algorithms making decisions that are of consequence to individual people's lives all the time um, in a completely automated way. So doing a conference like this today, how important is the information being brought forth to not only the people that are here at the conference, but to the public as a whole? Well, in my view, in the last couple of years, there's been, at the same time, growing fascination with AI and machine learning and growing re- you know, recognition of the power and usefulness of such methods. Um, also, you know, rising alarm with instances in which those algorithms or methods run afoul of different kinds of social norms. And so I think we're just at the, you know, kind of the front end of the that wave of realization. And so conferences like this are great because they bring together scientists and um, policymakers and legal types and regulators, you know, people who much more than scientists are quite used to thinking about, you know, the interactions between technology and society. Um, but really having, I think, deep dialogues with scientists about how algorithms work and about how they could be made while still being useful, you know, kind of um, friendlier to society, if you like. Do you think there there is that realization by a lot of people that are on the science side of the of this discussion about the policy side and and how those two need to come together? I do. I think it's still early days. And so, you know, I would definitely not say that, for instance, the bulk of the machine learning community is, you know, thinking regularly and deeply about, um, you know, they're aware of the societal implications, but I wouldn't say that most of us are thinking about solutions to that problem in any deep way, but it's definitely growing. I mean, just to give an example, there's a four-year-old conference uh, basically on Uh, machine learning and and things like fairness and anti-discrimination. And the first version of it four years ago was, you know, really a a handful of theoreticians 
talking to each other. And when it was held, um, you know, just last year at NYU, it had hundreds of attendees. And I would say about half of them were from regulatory agencies or watchdog groups and and other similar organizations. But the fact that you see more and more of these elements in our everyday lives, that probably makes it to a degree easier for scientists to understand how important a component this is already now and will be, obviously, in the years to come. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. And I think an important thing to remember is that <clears throat> at, at the same time that, you know, algorithms are wielding this tremendous influence in society, and that also raises questions about, you know, their behavior and um, things like privacy and, as I mentioned, things like fairness, it also provides the opportunity to kind of do things about you know, to do things that weren't possible before. So, right. for instance, um, even though human beings are, of course, entirely capable of discriminatory, for instance, racist behavior, let's say, in, you know, lo- loan or mortgage decisions, um, you could have been aware of that for many, many decades and kind of figuring out how to eradicate it or reduce it um, in people is a very difficult question. But if it's algorithms that are exhibiting the behavior, there's some possibility that you could design those algorithms to be less discriminatory. And so, the, you know, in some ways, the, the benefits of scale kind of cut both ways, both, you know, bad things can happen at scale with algorithms, but also solutions to bad things that aren't particular to algorithms can be addressed at scale. And so this will be part of, of what you're speaking about today here at, here at the conference. That's right. We're talking with uh, Michael Kearns, who's uh, from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, you're uh, listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. So when you talk about machine learning and some of the things that machines can do or will be able to do in the future, how far down this road do you think we are right now? Um, not very far. Um you know, it, it, um, as a you know longtime member of the machine learning community, um, I think like many of us, I'm kind of both excited and also somewhat bemused by the tremendous, not just influence that machine learning has had, but the attention that's being paid to it by you know pop you know society at large, for lack of a better term. Right. And um, you know, I, but I think we're you know none of the problems that are being solved right now are problems that cause me to think, oh, my God, how in the, I can't believe that we can do that, right? It's, it's more like we're solving problems much better than we ever had before. I'm not, like, diminishing the advances that have been made. But I would say that they're more quantitative than qualitative and that a lot of the things that have for a long time still been the domain of expertise of humans largely remains that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the the chipping away at the edges or margins is quite significant, I think. Do you think, though, that where people have these concerns about where we could be going with machine learning and AI, uh, do you have to, to a degree, temper that concern that people have right now because of the potential benefits that we're already seeing and what we will see in the future? Yeah. So I think that there's two main pillars of that fear. And I think 
in my view, and I, I, I think in the view of many of my colleagues, maybe even most of them, one of them is very real and the other one is not so real. Okay. So the one that I think is not so real is kind of the, you know, the singularity fear, this idea that we're going to create a super intelligence that's going to kind of take over the world and we are going to become the slaves of this master right. um, and that – you know, these machines will develop their own social norms and, and start making the rules of society. And, um, you know, never say never, but but I don't think that this is any anything close to a near-term fear. I mean, the more you know about how machine learning and AI really work, the, the less mysterious they seem and the less you're concerned of these kind of singularity-like fears. Um, the one that I think that people also talk about a great deal that I think is a much more real fear is like displacement of labor and right. um, people's jobs being taken or changed in radical ways because of automation. And, you know, that, that I think is not only already happening, but I don't think we're close to the limits of it yet either. And I think that that is the thing that's going to have a much more, um, you know, dramatic impact on society in the let's say the next decade or two than than the first type of fear, right? Because I, I when we've discussed this from the outside a little bit on the show in the past is the fact that uh, the potential of how jobs will be tweaked, changed, or lost as we move forward is something that a lot of companies have already started to think about. And unfortunately, for companies in many cases, their concern ends up being the bottom line. And in many cases, a lot of this technology will help them with the bottom line. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And you're you know, seeing it um, in large scale in everything from um, you know, kind of service sector jobs and call centers or, of course, you know, um, driving and transportation and the like um, to you know, um, things these days like you know, financial advice yeah. um, for consumers and – you know, it's an interesting thought experiment to think about a lot of professions that we historically have thought of as requiring a great deal of specialized human knowledge and expertise and asking kind of what really is going to defend those professions from automation. And, um, you know, I was trying to think about this the other day and, I, you know, we're, we're trying to think about what, what, are, what are the properties of a profession or a job that would kind of give it relatively strong defenses – and I, I think if, you know, you talk about jobs where there's not some legitimate aspect of creativity. Right. Um, and by, by creativity, I don't mean, you know, in the artistic sense exclusively. But, I mean, if you're not sort of in the business of inventing things right. and innovating or designing new things. So, like, let's say in the case of finance, right? I think if you're a straight-up traditional financial advisor using software tools and quantitative methods to provide good, sound, quantitative advice to your clients, I think that job is in trouble soon, yeah. if not now. And um, on the other hand, if you're in finance and, you know, you're designing new financial products and services and indices, um, you know, that kind of invention um, is, you know, something that's largely, you know, relatively outside the grasp of machines right now. And so that's a type of finance job that I think is, you know, secure for longer than the first type. But it feels like to a degree that and, you know, we've touched on a few of the potential negatives here, but it feels like for every potential negative, there's there's three or four 
positives that are out there. And you mentioned the changes within the financial sector, but I think of also healthcare uh, and and obviously uh, the automobile industry. I mean, there's so many pieces where this is going to play in an important role in how we advance not only as an economy, but as a society in the future. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I, you know, what I would say about that is that I agree with that, but it often is the case in technology that um, you see the negatives first, right? Because sure. what happens yeah. is the technology gets applied, as you sort of said, in, in the way that's kind of the most expedient and profitable for some party in the near term. And so it's kind of you know, trying to do things the way that they've been done before, but in an automated way. And often when you do that with technology, you kind of bake in um, a lot of the negatives at the same time. And then it's only after, you know, the thing is out there, whatever the thing is, that you start realizing, oh, you know, so now these automated models are, you know, exhibiting discriminatory behavior at massive scale. Um, and, and so I think you're right. There are often positives that we realize once we're exposed to the negatives of kind of the first instantiation. And I think what's important is for, you know, um, scientists to sort of start thinking more proactively and kind of anticipate what the negatives are and try to kind of reverse that order to get the positives out first. But to a degree, that's uh, – Seeing the negatives first, that's to a degree built into our personas in general. We have that kind of more negative feel towards a lot of things that maybe are new to us in our in our lives. Yeah, and, and you know, like machine learning is a great case study in this, right? I right. mean, there was, you know, in terms of the popular awareness and exposure to machine learning, the first way was generally like, oh, my God, you know. Um, look at all these speech recognition and image processing problems that are being solved by machine learning. Look at computers, you know, beating the best humans in poker, go, and chess, or what have you. And this all seems very exciting and not so threatening, unless, of course, you're the world's best go player. Right. Um, you know, but then quickly on the waves of that, it's like, oh, but these same methods are being used for these other applications as well and are having, you know, impact on regular people that might be negative in terms of job displacement or, you know, discrimination or privacy concerns or the like. And so I think we just, you know, it's always fun to kind of go for the most exciting, biggest application sure. yeah. that you can. Um, but but then when you do things at that scale, there's often negative consequences that quickly follow. But th- doesn't that also mean that it's going to be incumbent on uh, government, whether it be at the federal level or at the state or local level, to be able to be aware of these potential pitfalls that are there and to be able to have the understanding that almost that scientists have so that they can really have these elements work together in the best possible way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, you know, there's a lot of that type of activity going on. I've been in the last year or two to many meetings and workshops with regulators and, you know, um, lawyers and watchdog organizations that are sort of trying to understand how laws need to change, for instance, or regulations need to change in light of, you know, all of this new science and, um, you know, one one kind of tentative conclusion I've reached in my very fledgling explorations in this area is that, you know, a lot of law is going to have to be rewritten and a lot of regulations are going to have to be rethought because they just kind of don't apply to settings in which algorithms are making decisions, right? There's just sort of so many loopholes in the law when instead of a person or a human organization making the decision, a machine is making it. 
And so I think that that rewriting of the law is, as you said, going to have to be deeply informed by what the science and technology actually is. And so, again, I think we're at the very beginning of it, but I think there is a dialogue starting between kind of the science community and, and you know, the rest of the world. Some governments are kind of jumping ahead and really looking at this. I was reading a story uh, yesterday about Australia and some of the things that Australia is thinking about as a government and their regulatory side to be able to be prepared for both the good and the bad of this. Yeah, and, you know, also Europe is another example where – you know, depending on your point of view, kind of privacy protections are much more advanced or at least stronger in Europe than they are in the United States. Right. Um, and so there's, you know, some anticipation going on there. Um, I think one of the problems, you know, on sort of that regulatory side of things is that, you know, it's one thing to kind of rewrite laws and regulations to account for algorithmic behavior and decision making. It's another thing to enforce it. And I, yeah. and and I think that even if we rewrite laws and regulations in a way that that kind of applies more to algorithmic decision making, um, the enforcement of those regulations will also need to be greatly aided by algorithms themselves, because you know when algorithms are making decisions at very large scale, um, you kind of can't have human watchdog groups exclusively in charge of catching all instances or violations, you know, um, it just, you know, it, that doesn't scale, right? Um, yeah. In the same, you know, I guess one way of putting it is that in the same way that there's an attraction to making mortgage or credit decisions with automated models at very large scale, if those models are exhibiting behavior that we don't like, we're not going to catch all of those instances by people reviewing them, you know? And so at a minimum, I think we're going to need algorithmic tools um, for kind of auditing um, algorithmic behavior. And, the, and and so, you know, I know this kind of sounds like battle of the algorithms. Yeah, that's um, but, what I was thinking, But I kind of don't see, you know, the, the first, um, you know, the first bus has already left the station, as we say. So I think it's inevitable that the second bus also leaves the station, which is kind of um, algorithmic defenses against algorithmic behavior. And I don't really think of it as like, you know, a battle of the algorithms because, again, I, 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 I think we are firmly and for a long time in an era in which, you know, algorithms are designed by people, um, you know, and people can design those algorithms to have the behaviors that they want and to not have the behaviors that they don't want. Um, but just the scale of the data involved and the frequency at which these decisions are being made is, I think, going to require, um, you know, help from machines, right? And this but, is already happening, right? You know, like regulatory agencies like the SEC, when looking for suspicious trading patterns, for instance, in market data, you know, um, at the end of the day, human beings look carefully at suspicious patterns, but they can't like pour through the microstructure day of every day's market right. and find those. You know, they need tools that help them flag suspicious instances that they then look at. And the algorithm is really just being used to a degree as the vehicle to get to that point, kind of leading that person, that human being down to, hey, you may want to look at A, B, and C instead of looking at the whole alphabet. That's right, right. And similarly, in, in you know, when you talk about the, the potential for good, you know, a very similar type of application is in, you know, in medicine or radiology, for instance, where instead of the radiologist yeah. kind of needing to look at every case, you know, 
very carefully. They can have um, algorithms that assist them in looking at you know, the borderline cases or the ones that most require kind of human judgment. Which I think we're starting to already see yeah, yeah. with with like the detection of cancer and and which are the you know the the more significant cancers as compared to others. Yeah, yeah. I think um, you know the applications of machine the positive applications of machine learning in um, medical imaging are huge and, and starting already. We're talking with Michael Kearns, a professor here at the University of Pennsylvania. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We've mentioned a couple of areas, but are there other areas, other sectors that you see machine learning having the potential of having a great influence? Either, well, let's stay on the positive side of this moving forward in the next decade or two. Yeah, I mean, I think the one that we were just discussing, medicine is, and medicine and health more generally, are are huge application areas, right? I mean, um, there's already so many instances demonstrated um, where, you know, just a simple amount, a little bit of data gathering and displaying that data back to, um, you know, people um, has positive benefits for their health and their habits and the like, um, all the way to, you know, actually. Um, in hospitals and and you know medical research facilities in imaging examples, for instance, do you think though that that we can take the machine learning beyond the detection part and and into the into the next phase, I guess, which would be the the diagnosis and how to kind of eliminate or a, a, to deal with a particular medical issue yeah, I mean that kind of work is actually you know, gone on to some level for decades. Um, Not being an expert in this domain, you know, the reports I get from colleagues in this regard are that, you know, there's understandable reluctance in the medical community and from doctors at, you know, kind of fully automated diagnosis for, you know, obvious reasons, right? Right. I mean, mean, one way I like to think about machine learning is kind of like, um, you know, what's at stake in the decisions that you're making, right? Because machine learning, just to be clear, it's a statistical phenomenon, yeah. right? So yeah. it makes mistakes, right? There's an there's going to be an error rate. The right. question is just what is that error rate? And what is that error rate relative to the stakes of the decision being made, okay? So, you know, I'm sure that Google's algorithms all of the time make mistakes, quote-unquote, about what ads to show me in response to a query that I type in. But, like, what's really at stake? Like, for me, nothing's at stake, right, right? because I don't look at the ads anyway. For them, there's a little bit at stake because maybe if they showed me better ads, maybe I'd not only look at them more, but I would click on them sometimes, right? And they'd get revenue from it. But when it's, you know, a medical diagnosis and somebody's health or life at stake – you know, the, the 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 you know the stakes are a lot higher, and so I think that um, you know the areas where machine learning has been the most successful is where there's a huge amount of data, there's a need to make decisions tremendously frequently, like in um, you know what ads to show or yeah. um, you know processing images um, on the internet, and where the stakes are low, where the cost of a mistake is, you know, um, inconsequential. And in areas where there is little data and you're making decisions infrequently and they matter a lot, like, you know, we gave one example, but like the Federal Reserve Bank making decisions about whether to raise interest rates, they don't do that very often. There aren't a lot of examples of them having done that and what happened afterwards. And that's kind of the data. You know, you need these X, Y pairs where 
here's what the circumstances were, and we tried something, and this is what happened. And if you don't have much of that data, and the cost of making a mistake is very, very high, it's not like a great um, setup for machine learning. Nice meeting you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Michael Kearns, Professor of Computer and Information Science here at the University of Pennsylvania. We will take a break, and we will come back in just a minute with our number two of our show. We are at the Digital Tornado Conference here at the University of Pennsylvania. More coming up in just a minute. You're listening to Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you. 